0: All right, first round in the NIV. Um, You can open up your Bibles or look on the screen like me. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm going to read that again in the message. Think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what, not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death, and the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever so that all created beings In heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried will bow and worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father.
1: Beautiful. Thanks, Jordan. Really, it's great to have you, bro. Finished his PA school. He's a super fancy guy now. And uh, we're very proud of you. And well done. It's particularly cool that you are back with us. We spent the summer, you did, diving into Philippians. Great four-chapter book. John Tyson said it's probably Paul's favorite, and I I think it's true. It's the one book that he didn't introduce as I, Paul, an apostle by the will of God. He says, hi, Paul and Timothy, actually, we're just servants of God. And, And it's a book written around joy, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But when I came back from sabbatical, I too, like you, had been in a deep dive in an extraordinary book and asked for the opportunity to just share a few thoughts of my own in my study of this. And then beginning of October, we will start a journey through origins, the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. And we'll see why and how the community of the king, in spite of incredibly adversarial conditions, got going. So, what about this passage? Well, let me take a half a step back. Adam Smith from the New York Times wrote a very interesting article in which he wrote this. Post-COVID, he said, it wasn't burnout, we still had energy. It wasn't depression, we didn't feel hopeless. We are somewhat joyless and aimless. We are somewhat joyless and aimless it turns out there is a name for it. It's called languishing. Languishing is a sense of stagnation and emptiness. It feels as if you are muddling through your days, looking at your life with, through foggy windshield, through a foggy windshield, and it might be, it might just be your dominant emotion. It's feeling that you're muddling around, you can't see clearly, and you are joyless and somewhat Aimless. When I saw that, I thought, wow, that's an incredibly accurate description of so many people. We will come back to that in a moment. Let's step back into the socio-political world and forgive me for noting history is my major and I really do enjoy it. When I, when I saw this, the book made so much sense. So Vijay Gupta, who is becoming one of my newer theologians that I really enjoy, he described the Philippi as being like this. It was started as a city by Alexander the Great's dad, Philip, strangely enough. It was conquered by Augustus, and Augustus made it the outpost of the Roman Empire, the easternmost outpost of the Roman Empire, and what he did to secure its importance, not just as a trade route, but he appointed key soldiers, warriors if you wish, who had performed admirably before Caesar, and he sent them there. He, they retired there. They got paid there. They lived there. It was tax-free. They got land there. And so you can imagine with that came a whole lot of other stuff. They were there, as the notes say, by Caesar's generosity. They knew that. Caesar kindly has plonked us here. It's new money, it's not old money. Old money was in Rome, new money was in Philippi. It was a city of high honor. Your social status, your political influence. Uh, Gupta uses the idea of postal code envy. Where you lived was massively important, he argues. Joseph Hellerman uh, said that archaeological evidence suggests that it was a city that basked on status. Your status, your education, your credit. In fact, the Romans used to say that if you carried scars in the front of your body, you were a hero. If you were carrying scars on the back of your body, you were a villain. These were all front scarred men. They were highly admired, high social standing, and you muscled your way to the top. And you certainly never gave ground, Gupta argues. You certainly never backed down. You just elbowed your way to the top and you made your presence felt. And ultimately you give glory to Caesar because Caesar got you there. Now hold that thought for a moment. What happens when the gospel begins to infiltrate a mindset just like that? Well, let's see what happens. This passage of Scripture Tumaki calls the center of gravity of of the Philippian epistle. If you want to understand Philippians, he says, understand this is like an anchor, the center of gravity. It's like a, a wheel with all the spokes coming out of it. And what he does is he takes a poem, Paul does, and he writes everything around that. In traditional theological circles, it's called a Carmen Christi, a Christ hymn. When we were in Italy... Uh, We went to Florence. We went to the Dumo, and because we'd missed, we couldn't get in via tickets, my wonderfully, gloriously sneaky wife decided that we were going to go to Mass on a Sunday, and we dressed up nicely, just like the Italians would, our best clothes, and we knocked on the door. I mentioned it on Sunday, but it has bearing to this, and um, kind of a security guy came to the door. Yes, he said in Italian, and obviously I knew exactly what he was speaking about, and... uh, We said we want to come to Mass and he opened the door and this beautiful old Catholic priest got up and Merrill, having never heard a word of Italian, was persuaded that he was preaching about the Father's love. I couldn't think of anything better to preach about, so I agreed. But what was compelling to me for the first time was the liturgy. Because can you imagine, even in the early hundreds, two hundreds, the average house church did not have a musician. Most people couldn't read. So what could they do with the scrolls called the Bible or became the Bible? What could they do? They had to get someone to lead them. A leader would say something and the people would respond. A leader would say something. And as I sat there listening to this Italian liturgy unfolding, I thought, Lord, how silly of me. I've been so critical of liturgy. And yet now I understand its purpose. Here is this Jesus-loving old man leading about, what, love, 120, 150 of us, and we were able to respond, I don't understand a lick of Italian, I can't read it, but I could imitate it because of the wonder of poetry. This is, by all statements of theological intent, a poem written in high Greek written exquisitely about the magnificence of the Jesus, the one we love and we've given our lives to, the, the one who captured my heart as a 19, 18-year-old and captured yours. So this poem, I'm gonna just cover kind of three ideas around this portion, the poem, The Man, The Christ. This poem is written Around the sheer magnificence and the beauty of Jesus. Close your eyes for a moment. When I see Jesus, what do you see? Well, where's your imagination going? Is it the rugged, crusty footed, chipped hands of a a carpenter? Is that where it goes? Is it the fisherman with gentle eyes? And a gentle touch. Is it the rabbi who opened up the scrolls and explained it? Do do you see the rugged prophet who speaks to the brood of vipers? Do you see to the Pharisees as if a brood of vipers? Who do you see? Well, well, I guess it depends on where you are. If you're the woman caught in adultery, you probably open your eyes and you see the most tender, caressing eyes of eternity breaking in on your brokenness. And it's like, now I understand. If you were the rugged fisherman who had little education, but somehow wanted meaning and purpose, when you listen to the whispers of his call across the beach, you get out of your boat and you understand him and say, I, I understand. This poem is there to kindle in our imagination his magnificence and his beauty and his holiness and his wonder. It's what has gotten poets to write about him, artists to paint him, sculptors to craft him, stories to be written about him, mothers to sing to their kids, Jesus loves me, this I know. Why do those words carry such power to that little three-month-old who just cannot sleep as her legs kick up as colic breaks out and she can't understand the pain she's in and looks into the eyes of her mother and they're not eyes of frustration and anger and resentment for sleep taken, but they're eyes of tenderness. For the Bible tells me so. Meryl and I watched Operation Mincemeat last night. It's a true story of how Britain used a corpse to deceive Hitler. It's actually an extraordinary story. But after they dropped the corpse into the Mediterranean, hoping that he would drift with false intelligent papers to the Spanish shores and that the message would somehow get to Hitler that they're not attacking through Sicily, but they're going to attack through Greece. There's a picture in the intelligence room as the five of them who knew what was happening had done everything, every checklist had been answered, the submarine had dropped the body. And here were these rugged intelligence men and women. And I read the account of it, historically accurate account of it. And the leader in the movie acted up by Colin Firth said, well, I guess all that there is left to do is to pray. This poem is the most exquisite. If you don't know any scripture, can I exhort you to read and to learn This poem, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, rather he made himself nothing. Not only is it an exquisite piece of poetry, but secondly, it describes the man in theological terms, we call it the incarnation, which is one of those big words. We don't fully understand what, what it means, except that God surrendered his divinity and came to dwell amongst us in every way just like us. Matt Redman has a song. Meryl played it for me during our sabbatical. And the, the, the line reads, he knows what living is. See, see, we can never go to Jesus and say, well, see, you don't really understand because this hasn't happened to you. He knows what living is. He chose to surrender the wonder. I I try to think about it today while I was praying. What did he really leave? We can say it easy. Preaches well. Well, well, he left God. Well, let's get a bit more intimate. He left Father God. But but what did he actually leave? I love Nijay Gupta. Sorry, he's he's kind of a, a cute new theological voice to me. And he said, Jesus left the bling of heaven. And I smiled to myself. Because in a way, that's exactly what it is. The glory, the magnificence, the shekinah presence, the harmony of harmonies, beauty of beauties, unity of unity. He left all that is good and eternal and robed himself to step into our world. And there in our world, he experienced grief, Very dear friends of ours, we saw them when we were in South Africa. Their kids grew up with us, they came and helped us. We led a church called Southlands for 14 years. And can someone just get me some, uh, I I just need to blow my nose, I feel like I'm sniffing. Thanks. And uh, on the Sunday morning, uh, last Sunday morning in South Africa, oh thank you, thank you. Now how do I blow my nose without you feeling awkward? And I've had cancer cut out of my nose, so this is going to be interesting. Sorry, Milo. Meryl, can you go to the kids right now? They really need you. <laughs> anyway, on the Sunday morning, as happens, you kind of go back into the community you planted 40 years ago, and singles are married, and married people having kids, and um, I kind of came around, said goodbye to those people. Meryl was talking to her family. I walked around the corner and Chris and Wanda were there and and their daughters, their son wasn't there. Just gorgeous girls. In in fact, to be really honest, the the youngest daughter took my breath away. She is stunning, like drop-dead gorgeous. We chatted for a while, hadn't seen her for a few years, chatted for a while, got home from our trip and I got a text from her dad Chris is his name too. Please pray. Gabby, it looks like has had a seizure or a heart failure and was involved in an accident. I mean, I dropped everything I did. I'd just seen her a few days before. Chris and Wanda had landed in Portugal to go on vacation with some friends. They landed, got the message and turned around and came back. They got back in time for three hours to say goodbye to their daughter who died. Please don't say Jesus doesn't understand that. Because the Father gave His Son away to die at 33. God understands. To quote Matt Redmond again, He knows what living is, He left the bling of heaven. He left the wonder and the beauty and the extravagance and the extraordinariness and the wholeness and the purity of heaven to come and dwell in us with our brokenness, experiencing the extent of it. Dear friends, we who are so acquainted with the Christian story can at times miss that. I sent Chris a voice message. Merrill, Tian and I wept together holding each other when we heard Gabby had passed. I sent him a voice message. I'm guessing the only thing Chris and Wanda, as they cried out to God, surrounded by family and friends, was, Father, you understand. I don't have anything better to say. I don't have any pop theology to offer. But the Father understands. Jesus exposed himself to sorrow, to injustice, to isolation, to betrayal, to false accusation, to rejection, to distress, to anxiety. Jesus had anxiety. Really, Chris? Well, what did he do in the garden? Father, it's possible. Can you take this from me? Because this is not good. In fact, he was so anxious that he he, he sweated blood. I'm about to die the most horrendous of deaths. Is it possible? Can you take that away from me? I think the Father's heart was broken in that moment. It would have been mine. To lean over heaven, forgive the imagination, and to see your son on his knees, on the rugged, dusty, dirty Galilean soil, crying out to you, the Mount of Olives, been there. I can't my boy I can't you're going to have to walk through this one isn't it amazing that Jesus has been through what you have what I have that this piece of poetry is not just rhythmically powerful and verbally descriptive it lets us it's an invitation to share in Jesus in a unique way honestly honestly I don't want to sound like a preacher. I love words, but as a dad, can I say as a father, where are you right now that you almost wish, Jesus, if only you'd understand. If, if only you would understand. Well, well I, I'm so poor, I don't even have food. I know he took a few loaves and fishes and fed a bunch of people. They didn't have enough money. I can only imagine, Judas would have been pretty bad, but I can only imagine Peter, when Jesus looked at him and thought, forgive the crassness, you're going to screw me over, buddy, and it would not be the eyes of resentment or bitterness, but of love, but one day you will die as I've died, upside down. And Jesus said, you will be led to places you don't want to go, Peter. And he was crucified upside down. You see, dear friends, Jesus fully gets us. But to Philippi, Jesus was highly offensive. I took time to describe all that, what the culture was like and would have been fun to spend more time there. But you see, Jesus offered up the alternative. He said, "All right, all right, I know what you like, but, but I'm going to choose to empty myself. Can you imagine these Romans, these Greeks? There weren't even enough male Jews to have a synagogue there. So these were predominantly Grecian converts. Paul gets up and preaches the gospel. And this is what our Jesus has done. You know, you spent your life getting to the top, having the money, having the right postal code. You've done everything right. Well, let me tell you about Jesus because he emptied himself. He lowered himself. He diminished his social status. You want to get saved by a guy like this? And they like, dang, no. Or they were so swept up By this incredible gospel story, and then one day, significant disappointment slaps them. I don't know where Azrael's gone, but this is a quote I want to just walk through with you slowly. Thanks, the two of you. Any of you heard of a guy called E. Stanley Jones? I've got about 10 minutes left in me. You good? You good? East Stanley Jones is one of those pioneering missionaries, a remarkable man who planted something, there it is, who planted something in, in India uh, and they didn't call it a church, they called it an ashram. He was one of the pioneers of cultural engagement and letting the gospel take its place. So my therapist said to me, Chris, why don't you read this account? Old book, Denji, I found it on thriftbooks.com. And this is what East Stanley Jones said. Remember, the key idea is significant disappointment. I've come to Jesus, and now Jesus wants to do what? He wants to flip my world upside down. Let's read it. For a year, I lived under cloudless skies. The sun of my happiness seemed to have risen in the heavens and to stay there forever. But after a year of unalloyed joy, I found something alien begin to rise from the cellar of my life. I felt there was something down there not in alignment with a new life I'd found. My new life had given me cloudless skies. There's something else happening now. Ugly tempers, moodiness, and deep conflicts. The general tenure of life was victory, but there was these disturbing intrusions from the depths. I was becoming a house divided against itself. I was confused, hurt with a tinge of disappointment, and what he best describes as unconverted subconscious. We think we are consciously determining our conduct, but these drives actually determine us. These drives can roughly be described as self, sex, and the herd. Let me quickly describe in case it was too wordy for you. He got radically saved. I mean, like radically, radically saved. And after a year of living in this euphoria and this incredible sense of abandonment, and I can't believe how amazing Jesus is, slowly from the inner sanctum of his soul began to creep these things that had long left him. Ugly tempers, moodiness, and deep conflicts. And then if that wasn't enough, I was so confused, he said, hurt with a tinge of disappointment. But I thought those things were done. (coughs) I thought they were gone. And he realized there were deeper drives inside of him. The drive of self. I want it, and I want it my way. Sex. I want to be driven by my masculinity or femininity and all that that holds. Excuse me. And the herd. I want to be liked. I want to be accepted. (coughs) Paragraph two. In conversion, a new life is introduced into the conscious mind as we consciously accept Christ as Saviour and Lord. A love and a new loyalty flood the conscious mind. The subconscious mind is stunned and subdued. I love this. The conscious mind says yes to Jesus, as many of you have done and probably even did tonight. But the subconscious mind is stunned and subdued by this new dominant Loyalty to Christ, introduced into the conscious mind by conversion. Sometimes it lies low. The subconscious mind is this ecosystem of yet redemption, not filtering its way in there. Sometimes it lies low for long periods, subdued, but not surrendered. It waits for low moments in the conscious mind, and it sticks its head up, and when it seeks opportunity, to take over the conscious mind. What is he saying? That it takes a while for redemption to percolate itself down into our subconscious world. And in that subconscious world, he argues, we are driven by self. This is what I want. The Philippians knew what they wanted. Elbow my way to the top. Get a lot of money. Get prestige, recognition, applause. Never take a step back. Never give in. Never give up. And the conscious mind comes to Christ, but the subconscious mind simmers, waiting for an opportunity to come back and to gain the ascendancy. I love this particular line. Uh, Where it is? Here we are. The subconscious mind is stunned and subdued by this new dominant loyalty to Christ. My dear friends, please don't be startled. When you too experience the deep disappointment of following Jesus. Hey, this is not what I signed up for. What I heard is not this. This is something else. And slowly but surely, the inner dominance of a subconscious mind driven, he argues, by self, sex, and the herd begins to serve its way up. Why do so many of you sleep with your boyfriends or girlfriends? You know, it doesn't bring pleasure to the Father. It brings you momentary pleasure. Of course it does. But the moment the conscious mind starts being ridden, roughshod over by the subconscious mind, and momentary pleasure is way more important than a life shared for decades. Meryl and I married 43 years in November. Oh, Jesus, you are so disappointing. And then you have to do what Adam and Eve did. You have to hide from him. Worship is not as sweet anymore. Prayer is not as easy. The scripture is way more boring. Sunday and Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, lesser priority because you've allowed the subconscious mind to rise and the lordship and the beauty and the wonder and the mystery of Christ to shrink inside of you. he understands lastly it's a poem of great beauty it's a man of great understanding but ultimately it's the Christ I want to read from chapter 3 verse 7 if you would just listen with me I don't think we have it up there I I don't know if I are thank you listen carefully with me if you don't mind for whatever were gains to me, I now consider them loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Where is Paul when he writes this? Anyone? He's in prison. Probably Rome. Rome. Six hours, he's chained to a guard. Another six hours to another guard. No bed, no bedding. No food unless someone brings him food. He could so easily have written and given this Philippian church a long list because they did back him financially. Guys, can you send some more jerky because I'm really struggling? By the way, that vitamin drink or maybe Red Bull, we really dig that. He says, oh, no. I count everything as lost. The only thing that I want right now is not a bed and sheets and a mattress and friends. What I want is to know Christ. The magnificence of the poem that I've just written about, I want that Jesus to dwell within my heart. He says, For the surpassing worth of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I've lost everything. I've got nothing. But, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. I'm gonna land with this. Whew. December 1976 is when I said yes to Jesus. I don't know why I said yes. The only question I asked him that afternoon in my own bedroom at home was, are you real? That's all I need to know. If you're real, I'm in. If you're not real, I've lost nothing by asking the question. Forty years later, Meryl and I spent three extraordinary months together. God purposefully didn't give us a lot of time to plan it. We had two weeks to pull off a three-month time in about six countries. It was not humanly possible. Not financially, not socially, places to stay, places to visit. But I've read my journal many times over these last three months. And I read and I quote, Coming out of the sabbatical, I would say that it has been one of the deepest longings of my heart. Out of the beauty of the setting, the delight of the new adventures, of the privilege of amazing food came not a quest for more sabbaticals or more vacations, but to know him. Why was he so kind to us? Why was he so good to us? We arrive a little place to stay in Cornwall, where Meryl's family's from. And um, we just happened to say to the receptionist, Is there a, a fun place to eat? She directs us to a little cove. And there's a restaurant and a pub in this little cove, that's all. And we sit down to eat. And we look over the sun setting over this incredible Cornwallian coast. Honestly, I could not describe it eloquently enough. And Meryl and I looked at each other and said, he is so good. Why? Why? Friends of ours gave us a chunk of money. They're not wealthy at all. Hundreds of dollars. So do us a favor. Would you eat at a Michelin restaurant? We've never eaten at a Michelin restaurant before. There's one in Bath, England. And so I booked us in for lunch and these young chefs, all in their 20s, came and served each meal they brought. They came and explained it to us. In fact, it was so delicious that behind me, I couldn't see, but Meryl could see, was a young American couple and he kind of looked at her, spoke to her, looked again and picked up his plate and he licked it. <laughs> Not quite the thing you do at a Michelin restaurant. But why? Why? Is God so good? Walking hand in hand, which is our dream in our 80s, that we would walk hand in hand on a beach. We walked hand in hand on the beach. And all that we could speak about is just how wonderful he is. What a privilege it's been to serve him all these years. Meryl would get up in the mornings because in Mauritius the sun rose in the east and one morning she slept a little late or so she thought so she came running through hair disheveled, has it happened? And I knew exactly what she meant, has it happened? Has the sun risen? And I said, no my babe, the sun hasn't come up yet and she plonked herself on the patio and I took her tea and she watched the sun come up as she did every single morning because God is so good. When you taste the beauty and the harmony and the purity of this God, everything else tastes displeasurable. Why would he be so generous? Why would he be so lavish? Why would he be full of surprises? Why would he even care? I don't know if you know, but seeing leopards in the African bush is very difficult. They are silent assassins. You don't see them come. You don't see them go. And we pulled up. We, we were driving along this dirt road. And the tracker in the front said, leopard, leopard, leopard. And the driver backed up. And we went down. There was a young, I think it was a male, who sat over here. Just stared, stared at us. And we watched him. And for Merrill and I, we said, why, God? Why are you so Good to us. See, I want to know him. I want to know him more and more and more. I want to know him and his beauty and his wonder and his majesty. I want to know him that he can take my past and remove my past. Because we all carry a bag of embarrassment and shame. And we can lay it at the foot of the cross and there we are not met by disdain, but by the eternal gaze of redemption. I want to lay my future at his feet, trusting him that he who walked me through my past will indeed walk me through my future. All that I have to do is die. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. This piece of poetry introduces us to Jesus the man, introduces us to Jesus the Christ. And he was so compelling that the only thing a man needed in a dreadful Roman prison, chain shackled without food, bedding, or even friendship, was to know him. Could that hunger grab our hearts? Let's pray together.